Welcome to the Louisiana Sugarcane News Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Irwin. Dr. Al Ogeron is the LSU Ag Center weed expert. He conducts a variety of experiments with herbicides to control weed populations in Louisiana sugarcane fields. The Louisiana Sugarcane News Podcast recorded Al's February 2019 presentation at the Iberville Parish Growers Meeting. Here's Al. You know, I, w- I want to echo something that was said earlier. Thank you for your support of the scientists through your league dues. Uh, you know, we work as a team. Uh, always, the league's always there for us. USDA is always there, uh, and, and it helps us to be successful. Um, you know, he mentioned the, the, the government shutdown. Well, we had one test left to harvest uh, during the government shutdown, that which was a USDA test at Brian Harangs, and Atticus and Herman and my some government workers with Doug Sponhurst unpaid to harvest that test on y'all behalf. And Mr. Brian Harang said, Al, he said, you know, we see we're getting our money out of y'all. It was during our LSU holiday. So, um, you know, we're we're committed and dedicated. Um, You know, I'm sure your list is really long and things to have to do. One, reestablish headlands. I think that's probably at the the top of a lot of people's list. Uh, But weeds are starting to pop. I know we have a lot of residue to burn uh, still, but when, when we talk about weed control, I always go back to, to calibrating these, these big machines. You know, in Florida, they looked at 18 of these big automatic sprayers, computerized sprayers, and they showed about 44% of them, their GPA they were delivering was 5% or higher off of what, what uh, it should have been. So just because it's computerized, it's not perfect. Anytime you do any hydraulic work on these big machines, you need to, to recalibrate these, these, these systems. Um, another thing is nozzles wear. On, on that previous slide, it showed that 72% of the nozzles on these machines were at least 5% or higher out of specs. So we use a lot of metribuzin, even way more than they use in that Florida industry. These dry flowables are, are very coarse, and they act like a sandpaper grid on these nozzles, and, and it changes the flow. Um, we're going to go around, and I'm going to try to work with a couple producers. I'd like to buy a whole set of new nozzles for your machine uh, and come back and pull certain nozzles off and test the flow before and after. Um, we, Kenneth and I were talking. We'll try to get with probably three to four producers around the state just to try to get some kind of idea of how much where we get on these nozzles. Um, you know, the, the calibration formula, I was asking uh, some of the students in the sugarcane class, how many of you use that? Not too many of them do, uh, they say. Uh, but if you ever want to pray a prayer, we'll be more than happy to come out and help you. Uh, in terms of our winter grasses, uh, they're starting to pop right now. Uh, seeing some ryegrass out. Actually, ryegrass going into seed. Uh, we got some ra- uh, rescue and timothy out there, some poana definitely in some parts of the state. Uh, broadleaf weeds, they're coming too. The hen bits and such. What do we have? We don't have a whole lot of new chemistries. You know, when we got emerge weeds, 
uh, emerging grasses. We got the paraquat is our choice. Um, for the poan or annual bluegrass, we can go with uh, metribuzin, uh, diuron, um, one of these PS2 herbicides. But I got a call from Lucas Petrie yesterday in the northern part of the belt. Uh, he had a new producer who just came to Kane this year. Uh, he had a failure with metribuzin controlling poana. Uh, so I'm going to head up there next week to take a look at it and try to put out uh, some weed control to see if I could take it out. But they put a pound and a half of metribuzin and couldn't take it out. So that's kind of concerning. Uh, in terms of broadleaf weed control, 2,4-D does a good job on most of them. The problem is, is if we have clovers and medics, we need to add some dicamba to the dank. Whether if you go pure dicamba or a mixture of 2,4-D and dicamba, that hadn't changed a lot. In terms of using paraquat, scalding crossbones, our most dangerous chemical that we have, uh, it's a contact herbicide, so spray coverage is critical. One of the other things I want to talk about is that label. No matter if we're talking about gramoxone or anything else, that label's the law. As you well know, not far from here, we had some issues where we had a, a, an application near a school when school was going on. If you read that label, it says, do not spray around school, uh, playgrounds, uh, nursing homes, and, and that sort of things. Guys, it behooves our, ourselves to take care of our own business and to make sure that we're doing the right thing uh, all the time. Um, they had it tank mixed with, with pentamethylene, so you know you really had that odor and all, but to, having that picture of those kids playing and that tractor spraying on TV wasn't a good for anybody in our industry. One of the big things when using this product, we need to be using just flat fan nozzles and not AI nozzles. In St. Gabriel, I've done some work where I put 20 gallons of uh, out per acre with some AIs and I still can't get complete coverage of the ryegrass and I get pretty poor control. Um, the vine nightshade, I, I'd like to say we have this pass on the wrap. Uh, whenever I was doing my scouting to see how much cane uh, where I took this picture at, about three fields over, they have nightshade about four inches tall and about eight inches around right, already. Um, we have Tricera, we have that section 18 to 2020. Um, Kenneth made mention of us going through the IR4 process. Uh, it's it's going to get us funding to do the residue testing and hopefully we can bring this into our, our weed management program. It has a fit here for this nightshade. We did some work with Ben Giot, maybe a half mile down the road right here on some of this bush killer vine he had in some cane. It did a really good job on that. Um, we know when we tank mix it with Ormazon, we really get a whole lot more out of the Ormazon. So this may be a really good molecule going forth, especially for some of our tough uh, broadleaf plants that we, we're not controlling well right now with the 2,4-D and the dicambus. Uh, th this, in case you, you uh, hadn't seen this before, you need to get a commercial waiver when you're in any of this green area or some of these red areas to spray most auxin herbicides. Um, this is the list of them, but you don't see triclopyr on that list. Called the Department of Ag and I spoke with them and I said, can commercially, can we put that stuff out with an airplane uh, in, in these restricted areas? They told me yes, but if they start getting complaints that we got off target, off target movement, uh, it'll quickly be added to this list. If a producer would like to, to put it out himself, he just takes the risk in these areas. So um, 
some that we need to be made aware of. Uh, Pre-emerge herbicide options. You know, it goes back to, to making a game plan of what you have on your farm. Uh, talking to a producer before I got into the meeting today and he told me how much the price of metribuzin is increasing and looking for other options. Um, you know, no doubt about if you have an inchgrass problem, you, you only have a couple choices in my opinion. I like the tank mixes with, with metribuzin or hexazinone to really bump up that control. And a little bit, Lumax EZ came into the market last year. It's a mixture of three different products. It's Esmotolachlor, Atrazine, and Callisto. Uh, the Esmotolachlor is the dual. Uh, it's a, it, that, the Esmotolachlor is a, a mode of action we hadn't had before, and it gives us some flexibility in controlling weeds. One of the big places I see this, this chemistry really helping out is in ryegrass control. I've had some growers in the northern part of the belt put it out. I think Mr. Al Landry puts them out. We put some out in St. Gabriel. And I asked Dr. Hoy a couple of days ago at, when we had our first meeting, how much ryegrass we have in our plant cane? And you answer, Dr. Hoy? What ryegrass? What ryegrass? So, you know, you know, it's encouraging to see that we ha have a, a management option. Uh, again, talking with Mike Harper, they put out atrazine on the whole form, ryegrass everywhere. And I told them that atrazine wasn't going to do the job that it should be. Um, in terms of itchgrass, you know, I scratch my head a lot and I'm wondering why we're having such issues controlling it. This is a picture from last February, February 20th. We got plenty of itchgrass emerged on February 20th. It goes hand in hand on what Kenneth's saying with these warmer winters. Dr. Griffin always said, oh, we don't have to worry about this weed until April. Well, that's not true anymore. Um, when you look at the amount of seed in the, these fields, it's just tremendous. We went with, to Jason Richards, that's where this, this picture was taken. We sprayed gramoxone on that field and we put out some pre-emerged treatments. Uh, our best pre-emerged treatments for itchgrass last year, the mixtures of pendomethalin plus metribuzin or hexazinone. Full rates, guys, you can't be cutting down rates. You know, a half rate of, of pendomethalin, a half rate of metribuzin or hexazinone, uh, which it would be Velpar, or Veloso doesn't get the job done. You need to be putting out the full herbicidal rates. But it gave us the best control. Um, the, the next best treatments were the pendomethalin treatments. Uh, besides that, uh, to me, that, that, that's really where you need to go if, if you have that weed problem. Bermuda grass. Uh, walking fields yesterday, trying to reestablish some plots. I see Bermuda grass green as can be uh, in a field in uh, Lower St. Mary Parish. Um, you know, the place we attack this weed problem needs to be in the fallow land, that hadn't changed. Uh, glyphosate and, t uh, and tillage in combination. Uh, we had Armazon, which was labeled last year, which brings us a little bit of uh, suppression to the table. But when you have Bermuda grass like that, that that's good enough to, to run your cows over, this product won't, won't be an end all uh, to take it out. Some work we did in 2017 at Boo Laver's place, looking at Armazon from one all the way up to two ounces at 28 days, somewhere 75, 65 to 70% control. When we get out to 49 days after application, that control dives a little bit. Uh, Armazon plus Garlon, I just want to pick out on this treatment. Garlon is triclopyr. Uh, it is not labeled in cane. The only one which is right now is the Tricera and you have to have nitrate in that field. And that's one of the things that I was saying that it's really going to add a lot. It bumped up control all the way to 
uh, which is impressive, and still by 49 days, 83% control. So this is going to give us some flexibility I see in the future, especially if we can get that product labeled for our industry. Uh, one of the big things that we've seen, we've seen some antagonism when we tank mix Armazon and Metribuzin. I wouldn't suggest that you do it. Um, I bumped my rate up to two ounces last year of, of Armazon with, with two pounds of Metribuzin, and I didn't see quite as much. I want to look at it again. We may need to, to adjust our rates, but at one ounce of Armazon and uh, two pounds of Metribuzin is a no-no in my book. Uh, in terms of Johnson Grass Control, really no product, new products. You still got Asia Locks, four quarts to the acre, or you can tank mix it with Invoke. The big thing is we want that the average daily temperature to be around 60 degrees, and we don't want to do any kind of cultivation or fertilization for seven to 10 days after we put out the material. With that, any questions? Yes, sir. Ditch bank control. Uh, I'm gonna tell you, in terms of pre-emerge, I like command. Command some some really really good activity on it. Uh, you know, you can go back to days where they use high bar to sterilize ditch banks and all, but then then you lose it all. But uh, to me, the the command is, is probably a notch on top of pendomethylin uh, in in controlling itch grass. Um, three pints, three pints. That you know, uh, but y you know, if you want to go with the, the high rates of hexazinone plus pendomethylin, that'd be another good choice, and it may be a more cost-effective choice. Uh, we just got to watch out with the hexazinone, the Velpar, or, or the Veloso. They got a 234-day pre-harvest interval if you use that product, so you can't get much out into to, 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 uh, March and put it over your cane. And then if you have really sandy soils, it'll leach and get down. But on the ditch bank, it'd be a good, good uh, choice uh, for that. Uh, you gonna do the other one? Cause I got the head on. Oh, you gotta go. Yeah. Gotta go. I got one more little talk. We'll, we'll uh, talk about cover crops real quick. Uh, how about that? Um, one of the things that I got involved in is, is some cover crop research and uh, Dr. Leonard asked me to do it, and is you know NRCS is, is pushing it a whole lot, and I wasn't really that excited about it, but uh, we did it. And then I got a call from a couple producers uh, from their county agent in the uh, St. Mary Iberville, I, uh, not Iberville, Iberia area, that they were really interested in, in doing this. Uh, Mark Patu on this side, and this is Taylor Blanchard uh, with Blanchard Brothers Farm. So just to tell you a little bit what we did. In 2017, we went in, Mr. Mark planted his cane. Uh, it was on September 12th, we came back and we seeded winter peas and hairy vetch in the, the row middles. He lightly cultivated it in. Uh, we came back and we harvested biomass on this. We had about two tons of biomass. Um, this is my students actually cutting uh, out every bit of biomass on that row to see how much we had. Uh, we broke it down. Uh, we went in in the spring and we wanted to look at termination treatments. You know, this is a weed in this situation and that's the last thing we want to do is have weed issues. 
uh, caused by the cover crop. We plan trying to uh, for soil stability. You know, we don't want to do any harm for sure. We want to gain a benefit. So we did a couple of different terminations dates, January 25th, three weeks later in mid-February, and then again in early March. Uh, when we look at stock population in July, you can see the highest population is when we control the cover crops early and it falls uh, as you go later into that year. Again, stalk height was highest, uh, tallest cane when we terminated early. And that kind of goes into what uh, Dr. Mill Howland had showed with winter weeds. He showed that you lost two tons of cane if you delayed uh, putting out your, your winter burn down from February 15th to March 15th. And this is the same trend that we've seen there. Unfortunately, as wet as it was, we couldn't get in and harvest these plots uh, with Mr. Mark. Blanchard Brothers, um, th this project was uh, driven by Taylor himself. Um, I always wanted to put legume cover crops in. He wanted to do it a little different way. Um, he drilled it with his soybean uh, planter. It's, first of all, I want to tell you, he planted three different things. He planted sun hemp, which is a summertime uh, cover crop, bullseye radish, which looks like a carrot. This is some of it right here, and rapeseed. And uh, he was talking with a guy from up north um, in the Midwest, and, and these are the crops that the guy suggested. Just to, to show you a little bit of, of, of what it looked like, the cane was established first before he planted it, not really acting as a weed because it's hanging on those, those real hips. The sun hemp right here, he knew when we caught a frost it would die out. It actually died out when we had that little snow event. Um, we went in and, and uh, sampled the leaf tissue uh, to see where it is. And the surprising thing, and that's what that guy was telling him, that these are, are big miners of potash and sulfur. Uh, I don't know uh, why. Uh, the nitrogen levels were pretty comparable to the legume cover crops as well. Uh, we went in, did the same thing, did stalk heights and uh, population and saw no differences. But when we came to harvest, uh, we picked up a significant amount of cane yield uh, and a significant amount of sugar yield. So he spent $23.95 per acre. I figured the planting cost based on some of the work that Dr. Deliberto has is about $13. At 25 cent sugar, one fifth rent, 60 40 mil split, he gained about 1,400 pounds of sugar and 135.49 per acre. Now this is a one year worth of data. We're gonna go back and uh, try to repeat this. Yesterday, this is where I was trying to reestablish these plots because we want to cut it in, in the first double. But this is encouraging. Talking with Dr. Hall, he said, you know, we may have changed the microbial community. There's a lot of different things that we don't understand about this, but it's exciting. And it goes back to what Herman said, if you have an idea, this was this grower's idea, we just went in and made sure that the science was done properly where we could do a, a statistical analysis on it and give a fair scientific shake to it. Uh, you know, I can't take a whole lot of credit. Uh, if the league, if Atticus wouldn't have lined up getting the, the way wagon there to cut this plot, then if Herman and Atticus and USDA wouldn't have helped harvest these tests, uh, it wouldn't have happened, but it was a one good team effort and we encouraged. And with that, any questions? All right, thank you. Sugar cane, sweet sugar cane.
The Louisiana Sugarcane News Podcast is brought to you by the American Sugarcane League. For more information about the Louisiana sugarcane industry, visit lacane.org. I'm your host, Sam Irwin. Thanks for listening. An afternoon shower possibly But then the temperatures increase The men are working in the fields And trucks are loaded with that amazing tree Sugar cane, sweet sugar cane The sweetness of our southern dreams